Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and today we're going to be talking about procalcitonin. Procalcitonin has been a hot topic within pediatrics for probably the last 10 years or so, and it's really being used more and more to guide clinical decision making. So in this episode, I just wanted to talk about where we're at in terms of procalcitonin research, what we know, and kind of how we can use that in our clinical practice. I will also add a quick disclaimer. This is an episode that's being recorded in spring 2021, and this is definitely an active area of research. So as of today, this is kind of up-to-date information, but certainly new things are coming out all the time. And so if you are listening at a later date, it may be worth it to just do a quick lit search and make sure that nothing new has come out since the time that this podcast airs. Okay, so let's start by talking about procalcitonin and what it even is. Um, Procalcitonin is a precursor to calcitonin, which is involved in calcium regulation. And so in healthy people, procalcitonin is produced by the thyroid gland mostly, um, and then the thyroid converts it to calcitonin, and then calcitonin goes on to regulate calcium levels in the body. In infected people, people who have, in particular, a bacterial infection, um, that infection causes a cytokine release. In particular, TNF-alpha and interleukin-1-beta are released into the body, and those cytokines increase procalcitonin production and procalcitonin gene expression in areas that are outside of the thyroid. And so what happens is a lot of procalcitonin ends up being produced and the thyroid can't keep up with that regulation and that conversion to calcitonin. And so we have a spike in procalcitonin levels when the host is infected with a bacterial infection. This is kind of in contrast to a viral infection because cytokines that are released during viral infections don't tend to produce that same level of procalcitonin upregulation um, and increase in gene expression. So as I kind of alluded to, things that cause high procalcitonin are bacterial infections because of the cytokines that are produced. And then less often we see it in um, severe fungal infections, surgeries, burns, and certain types of cancer. So certainly it's not only upregulated during bacterial infection, uh, but that's definitely one of the main uses that we see in clinical practice is helping us differentiate between maybe viral infection versus maybe bacterial infection. So what are we using now instead of procalcitonin as kind of a marker for bacterial infection and systemic inflammation? Well, we're mostly using CRP, which as we know is made in the liver. CRP is produced in the liver and released into the bloodstream where it has a couple different functions. One, it binds apoptotic cells, so cells that are dying, and attracts phagocytes for cell degradation. Two, it binds bacterial capsules, which is um, where it becomes particularly useful. And then three, it increases complement levels and creates sort of this generalized um, inflammation. And so CRP is certainly um, a marker that we use all the time in clinical practice, both as a marker for systemic inflammation, but also a little bit as a marker for bacterial infection. And that's because it does bind bacterial capsules, and so more CRP in the bloodstream is associated with a bacterial infection. All right, let's take a look at the research. 
We know that procalcitonin was originally described more in adult literature as a marker for sepsis and bacteremia. Um, they actually first looked at it in patients who were admitted to adult ICUs and um, used it as a marker for morbidity and mortality. From that point, it's kind of evolved into this marker for bacterial infection and a way to kind of risk stratify patients into patients who are at high risk for sepsis and bacterial infection and patients who are not. So I want to focus on three areas within pediatrics that there is active research being done on the use of procalcitonin. And the first and biggest of the three is in infants who have fever without a source. So this is a huge topic within pediatrics, right? Because we know that babies who have not received their first vaccinations are relatively vulnerable to serious bacterial infections. And those are things like bacteremia, meningitis, and really diseases that have a high morbidity and mortality associated with them. This is definitely something that we want to know more about and become better at managing as pediatricians. So first, let's start with an example. Let's say we have um, a 40-day-old female She's in the ER with a fever of 38.5. She is fussy and irritable. Um, Mom is trying to feed her, but she's pushing the bottle away. And otherwise, you examine her head to toe, and she's got a fairly non-focal exam. So meaning you check her ears, they're clear, clear lungs, soft belly. Mom says that she hasn't had any changes in urination um, or odor that would suggest like a UTI. And you're kind of scratching your head and thinking, what is this fever coming from in this patient? How are we going to work this patient up? We know that she's 40 days old, and so she is not yet two months of age. So she's unimmunized, right? Maybe she had her hepatitis B vaccine um, at birth, but really that's not going to protect her against some of the scary things that we're worried about, like strep pneumo um, and H flu and things like that that could cause a meningitis, or a bacteremia. Of course, this is a female patient, and even in a male patient, we would go ahead and check a urinalysis, get a urine culture, just to rule out UTI. And as part of our workup, we would also order CBC, CRP, blood culture, and kind of look for signs that this baby may have something more serious than a viral infection going on. And the question becomes, Is there something else that we can order for this patient that would help us feel really good about the fact that she probably doesn't have a serious bacterial infection going on? And that's where procalcitonin really comes in and plays a role. So I want to introduce this concept of invasive bacterial infection versus serious bacterial infection. These are a couple terms that I've noticed come up a lot in pediatric papers, Um, and don't really have the most intuitive definitions. So serious bacterial infection basically means that the baby has either a UTI or a positive urine culture, a positive blood culture, a positive um, CSF culture. And then in contrast, an invasive bacterial infection kind of just excludes the UTI. So I guess a bladder infection is not invasive enough for these research people. And invasive bacterial infection pretty much just refers to babies who have bacteremia and babies who have meningitis. So that being said, 
there is a fair amount of research in the use of procalcitonin to risk stratify these babies in terms of who may be more likely to have an invasive bacterial infection or bacteremia meningitis versus who doesn't. Um, there's a lot of papers out there on this, and really the one that I found most helpful was a meta-analysis that kind of combined 12 different studies and pooled all that data to come up with some overarching results. And so this is a paper that came out in 2017. Um, when they pooled the data from all 12 studies, they had about 7,300 babies. Majority of those babies were younger than three months of age, so less than 90 days. And they found that procalcitonin at a threshold of 0.5 nanograms per milliliter identified invasive bacterial infection with a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 86%. Those are pretty good numbers. And then when they increased that threshold from 0.5 to 2, they found that they found that the sensitivity and specificity became 61% sensitivity and 94% specificity. So the result of that paper, which kind of pulled this data from 2007 to 2017, is that using procalcitonin at a level of 0.5 nanograms per milliliter um, has a really good sensitivity and specificity for detecting invasive bacterial infections in these babies who are less than 90 days of age. So that's great, right? Because that tells us that maybe we can use procalcitonin to risk stratify these patients. And what's interesting is that there was another paper that came out in March 2021, so just this month, that was published in Pediatrics, and it described an implementation of a febrile neonate pathway that uses procalcitonin to kind of risk stratify patients, and they specifically looked at this age group between 29 days and 60 days of life. And what they found was babies who are in this 29 to 60 day age group after the implementation of this febrile neonate pathway, which basically just said, we're going to add a procalcitonin and use it to risk stratify patients. Um, after they implemented that pathway, they did see a decrease in the amount of lumbar punctures performed in low risk infants. So if you had a baby, like our example patient, who was 40 days of age, you order labs on them, the CBC, the CRP, a procalcitonin and a urinalysis, the urinalysis is negative, so you don't have a focal source of fever, but the procalcitonin is less than 0.5, that would categorize that patient as a low-risk patient for an invasive bacterial infection, so low risk for meningitis and bacteremia. In that scenario, you may use that information to not get a lumbar puncture on that infant, and um, that is actually what they found was that there was a decrease in the amount of lumbar punctures done in those babies. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I do know that at the institution I work at, we do use procalcitonin as a risk stratifier in the babies who are between this 29 and 60 day age mark. Um, I think in the babies who are less than 29 days, of course, we're a little bit more cautious. Um, in the babies who are more than 60 days, the thought process there is that they may have already had their two month vaccines and so we can all breathe a little sigh of relief that maybe the risk of bacterial infection in that patient is a little bit lower. 
So in terms of conclusion for this overarching topic of young infants with a fever and no source, I think that I think that there is a lot of good data to show that procalcitonin at a threshold of 0.5 has a really great negative predictive value against invasive bacterial infection. A second area of active research is use of procalcitonin in pediatric pneumonia. And there's really not as much data in this field, um, but I think there's a lot of interest around that and there's probably gonna be a lot more papers generated looking into this because this is a big way that procalcitonin is used in the adult world. So in the adult world, um, they will trend procalcitonin similar to the way we might trend like a CRP, and they will use it at a threshold of, I believe it's 0.25, and say that if the patient is clinically better and their procalcitonin is going down, they may use that as evidence to support the notion of discontinuing antibiotics. So that is kind of how it's being used in the adult world, and I think that there is some thought that maybe we could translate that over into pediatrics, but based on the research that I've done, I did not find anything super substantial to support that at this time. So my conclusion for that topic would be more research needed. And then finally, the third area that I've found that people are looking into use of procalcitonin within pediatrics is in regard to pediatric SIRS and sepsis. So there was a 2008 study that looked at PICU patients who came in with SIRS and they found that when using CRP and procalcitonin together, if both are high, then the post-test probability of bacterial infection was around 74%. So that's pretty good, right? If both were negative, then the post-test probability was only 3%. There's also some limited data to suggest that there is some utility in trending procalcitonin in the PICU setting, and that a lack of decline in procalcitonin once antibiotics have been initiated, would suggest a higher mortality associated with that patient. Um, again, I think that there's only a couple papers out there that kind of have looked into this, and so there's probably more data that needs to be done before we can really definitively draw a conclusion on how to use procalcitonin in pediatric sepsis. So overall, I would say that procalcitonin has a great negative predictive value, and it's a good biomarker that can help us rule out scary bacterial infections. But on the flip side, a high procalcitonin doesn't necessarily rule in a serious bacterial infection. So it's better as a rule out type of a biomarker. And that is our episode on procalcitonin. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. 
This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.